Brothers and sisters, we're about ready to start our second class today. Our speaker is Brother Jason Robinson. The theme for Brother Robinson's classes this week is The Tales of the Giants. Today's class is entitled The Failure of the Feeble Giants. Brother Jason? Thank you very much, and uh, another good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Is um, Uncle Brian Stiles in here? Not yet. Oh, where is he? There he is. I, I, I got to start off by saying a big thank you to Uncle Brian, Brother Brian in this class, I guess, uh, for sharing some of his findings on Deuteronomy, uh, really giving me that gentle nudge that I needed to kind of connect two very diverging studies I was working on. I was studying the Nephilim giants and the Rephaim giants, as we're going to go over today. Um, and I just want to say thank you, Uncle Brian, for uh, passing on some of his findings to me and really, man, just help me connect some of those dots. So um, today we're actually going to be talking about the uh, Rephaim. So if you guys look in this middle page in your guys's quick guide, you notice at the top, there's the Nephilim yesterday and the Rephaim, which is going, we're going to be going over uh, today. Um, so what we've done so far is we have gotten to know our giant, right? We can put a big checkbox in there. And uh, yesterday, what we started to do was actually remove any doubt that we can beat our giant. Uh, what we did yesterday is we looked over the, the Nephilim, and we saw that we need belief. Belief is that one single thing that we all need to have in order to beat our giants. If we don't have it, as we're absolutely going to see very strongly today, uh, you can really just say, you know, put the welcome mat out for your giant, uh, invite him into your home, whatever it is you need to do, because belief is going to be the one thing that gets you through and gets you to uh, be able to defeat that giant. So these are a couple quick slides that we didn't get the time to make it to yesterday, um, but we saw the genealogy of these Anakims. We saw the three sons, their father, Anak, and his father, Arba. His father, Arba, there was a city named after him, Kirjeth Arba. And it makes a lot of sense that this city of four, Kirjeth City, Arba four, was really named appropriately after those four giants that descended from Arba. We're first told of it in Genesis 23, and Sarah died in Kirjeth Arba, the same is Hebron. It comes up again, Joshua 14, and the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, and it links it to this Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakim. So this is going to be the introduction, really, of our series today, um, and it kind of is a catch-up from yesterday, but it's a good blending of the Nephilim and the Rephaim. So what we want to do is just start off in Genesis chapter 14. If you'll come with me to Genesis chapter 14, it's the first really a big occurrence of this Rephaim giant. And we're given this um, basically a big battle. You can think of it like a, a little world war going on in Genesis chapter 14. We have a bunch of kings finding a bunch of more kings and another king coming up later. So Genesis 14, uh, we're told that Ketaleomer comes down with all of his nations, and he attacks a group of people in verse 5. And in the 14th year came Ketaliomer, 
and the kings that were with him and smote all these rebellious nations who were under his control, the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnim, the Zuzims in Ham, the Emims in Shavakirathaim, the Horites in Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazion Tamar. So we're given this list of nations which Ketaleomer, the king of Elam, comes down and he takes. Well, we know the story, hopefully, of Genesis chapter 14, the prophecy involved in this chapter. And Abram gets involved when his nephew Lot is captured. He finds himself in Genesis 14 in the middle of a very scary battle. There's a citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah who flees. And he finds Abraham and he tells Abraham the news that Lot and Lot's family has been captured. So Abraham gathers his massive army of 318 people. And he goes and he teams up with three other Gentile leaders in Joshua, sorry, in Genesis chapter 14. He teams up with, in verse 13, Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol, and the brother of Aner. And it says, and these were confederate with Abram. Now we're told that Mamre was an Amorite. And we are going to be looking further on throughout this class, but I think we can assume from some of the verses we'll take a look at in a little bit, that Amorites were actually giants as well. But it says something very interesting. It says the end of the verse that these three Amorites were confederate with Abram? What does confederate mean, brothers and sisters? It's actually made up of two words, a word we will recognize, Baal, Im, I am at the end of the word, of course, uh, making it plural, and Berit. So these were lords, as Baal means, or possessors of this covenant. And it just so happens that this is the first time the word Hebrew ever occurs in your Bible. And so we have these three kings, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, who are possessors of a covenant with the Hebrew Abraham. Now, the interesting thing is that they were also Amorites. And did anybody notice anything that's probably misplaced if uh, you were just reading the story and you didn't have a lot of context? Well, it turns out a few verses earlier that Ketaliomer in verse 7 actually attacked Amorites. So were these just really selfish group of Amorites? Eh, they're just our cousins over there. They can be defeated. It's okay. No, brothers and sisters, of course not. These were confederate now with Abraham. And so it was now this group of a new four. It used to be called, they lived in Kirjath Arba. We're told that at the last verse of chapter 13, then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is Hebron. Hebron and Kirjath Arba are the same city. And so it's a city of four, which Abraham renames Hebron or confederate or union. And he takes this place and he says, this is a new city. This is no longer the city of four giants. This is now a confederate group around this Hebrew covenant. And the interesting thing is if you go to Google Maps, you actually have these places really in this region still virtually there. Hebron, right next to a place called Kiryat Arba. Interestingly enough, um, 
the regions still exist generally uh, in that area. And so what we're gonna do is, as we introduce today's topic is giants, brothers and sisters, will test your faith. If you don't believe that, you're not fighting them very hard. Giants kept people out of the promised land. An entire generation wasted away in the wilderness because they let themselves see giants for being big. And it's important that we never, ever, ever let giants keep us out of the promised land, us out of the kingdom. You know, God will introduce you to giants, as many of us are aware, and there will be giants. It's important to realize, though, brothers and sisters, that the Israelites were not beaten by the giants. They never even challenged them. They accepted the giants, and they were fine with missing out in the promised land. They ignored them. But what we're going to see today, brothers and sisters, is God wanted so badly to prove to them that he can beat giants. And so yesterday, we asked the question at the top of the page, do you fully believe you can beat giants? And I recommended maybe we wait to the end of class today to fill this in. And then we asked, what reservations or doubts do you see that may get in the way uh, of driving out your giant? Hopefully we answered that one. What are those physical things that we can actually say, well, you know what, I just don't want to beat my giant. Maybe it's just something I'm not interested in. I'm comfortable with the relationship my giant and I have. But God today is going to prove to the children of Israel by means of Deuteronomy that he really really wants to help you beat your giant. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter one. And as we're turning to Deuteronomy chapter one, we're going to ask, are there giants in your life? Goliath was big. Goliath was very, very big. Not that big, but he was big. Og of Bashan was even bigger, we presume, as we'll see a couple clues today. But brothers and sisters, it's interesting because how tall do you suppose your giant is? How tall is your giant? You know, we spent Monday looking at getting to know our giant, and we curiously didn't actually ask how big he was. You think that would be one of the first questions you would ask about getting to know your giant? Well, how tall is he? Would you say your giant is taller than the scale here? Shorter. If you stood up right next to him, is he your height? Twice your height? Is he 10 times your height? How big is your giant? Well, here's the cool part. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big he is. God didn't want the children of Israel to be like, well, we could defeat giants if they're 10 feet or less. Anything over 10 is a little, we might have to get two gods involved in this one. No, brothers and sisters, God wants to beat any giant, no matter how big, no matter how tall he is, he wants to beat him. So yesterday we looked at the Nephilim. We saw yesterday how it's a really actually weird word, meaning fallen ones, fallen ones. And we talked about some of the possible reasons. Maybe they fall on others. Maybe they fell out of righteousness. But whatever it is, they were fallen ones. And now if we think, okay, giants are fallen ones, the main principle we're supposed to pull out from that is, brothers and sisters, giants are meant to fall. You tell me a giant in scripture who won. You tell me the victory of any giant in scripture. 
They don't win. Giants lose. They fall. So the Nephilim are these fallen ones. And we're going to introduce today this second type of giant, the Rapha, or the Raphaim. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1 through 3, we're given this amazing resume by God about the Rephaim. But they have an equally pathetic name. If you were to name your giant, we told you to name it something silly. Well, the scriptures already kind of beat you to it. The giants, the Nephilim, fallen people. The Rephaim, Rapha means to sink, to be weak, or to be feeble. What is God getting at with giants in scripture, brothers and sisters? They're not scary. Giants are beatable. They're weak. They're feeble. And they fail. And so in Genesis 14, we saw a list of many different types of giants. The Rephaim, the Zuzims, the Emims, the Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites, almost all of which, brothers and sisters, are giants. So Keneliomer was a giant slayer, which makes Abraham a giant slayer slayer. That's a, that's a pretty cool thing. So brothers and sisters, we already see that giants can be beaten from Genesis 14. You can use that. Giants can be beaten. Really, the first time they come up, they can be beaten. So with that context, brothers and sisters, we now know a little bit more maybe about the Nephilim and the Rephaim. And so today we're going to be taking a deeper look at this Rephaim, looking at Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3. So the children of Israel, as we looked at yesterday, entered into this promised land. They came back and said, we can't fight them in Numbers 13. And God says, sure, you're right. You can't fight them with that attitude. You're going to wander for 38 more years. And so they do. They wander in the wilderness for 38 years, contemplating the decision that they made. And they come then to the brand new generation. And the brand new generation has the exact same questions in the edge of the promised land. Can we beat the giants? And so at year 40, Moses stands up and he gives this rally cry of a speech called Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, some think, is a speech that is basically one day. The word this day occurs 71 separate times in the book of Deuteronomy. And it was a message from humble Moses to a new generation, pleading with them to not make the same mistakes as their parents. And their parents were scared of giants. So guess what he's gonna use as the opening, as the hook, as the clincher for his rally cry. Well, he's going to use giants. Well, why wouldn't you? It's a new generation, but not a new people. Everyone's scared of giants. Yesterday, we looked at how it's tough to believe. Today, we're going to look how it's crazy not to believe. And so he gathers them. And we know this is a new generation because it says in chapter 2, verse 16, so it came to pass when all the men of war were consumed, 20 and up, and dead from among the people. So this is a new generation, a rally cry that he's going to call out 
to the people. And we come to Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3, and God is about to lay forward an example that is going to blow their mind. If anybody approaches the promised land and says, we can't beat giants, then they were asleep for Deuteronomy's 1, 2, and 3. He's going to start at chapter 2. And let's read together, if we can. Well, let's look at verse 1. Then we turned, and we took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as Yahweh spake unto me, and we compassed Seir many days. And Yahweh spake unto me, saying, You've compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward, and command thou the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye of good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you their land. No, not so much as a footbreadth, because I've given Mount Seir unto Esau for possession. Come down to verse 9. And Yahweh said unto me, distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of the land for a possession, because I've given R unto the children of Lot for a possession. So he says, the Moabites are going to be in your land already. Don't go in there. It's not your land. In fact, this land of Ar, I've given to them, he says. I've given the land of Ar to the Moabites. But he says something very curious. He says, I have given Ar. Who gave Moabites the land? God did. Why did he give them the land? Well, it says in the end of verse 9, because they're the children of Lot for a possession. They are related to Abraham. So guess what I do with people who are related to Abraham? I bless them. And I gave them this land of Ar. Now, who was in the land of Ar before? Look at verse 10. The Emims dwelt therein in times past. They were a people great and many. And tall as the Anakim. So, what did the Moabites do with the help of God? They destroyed giants. Oh, isn't that funny? Well, what about the Edomites? Verse 12. The Horims also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which Yahweh gave unto them. So then we come to the Edomites in the land of Seir. Verse 22 says, as he did to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horims from before them. God helped the Edomites beat giants. Because they were related to Abraham. Through somebody named Esau. So guess what the Edomites did? They destroy giants, the Horims. Look at verse 19. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. That also was accounted a land of Rephaim. Rephaim dwelt therein in old times, and the Ammonites call them the Zamzumims. I like the margin a little bit better, the Zuzims. A people great and many and tall as the Anakims, but Yahweh destroyed them before them. 
So what about the Ammonites? Well, they took a land called, later on, Ammon. Did God help them? Absolutely. Why? They were related to Abraham through his nephew Lot. Did they destroy giants? Yes, the Zuzims. You see what he's doing, brothers and sisters? You see what God's getting at in Deuteronomy chapters 1, 2, and 3? He's going to open up his whole speech by saying God beats giants. But he's not done. Look at the next verse. Verse 23. And the Avims, which dwelt in Hazarim, even unto Azah, the Kaphtarims, which came forth out of Kaphtor, destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. Jeremiah 47, 4. Amos 9, verse 7, tell us that the Kaphtarim are nothing other than the Philistines. Jeremiah 47, 4, and Amos 9, verse 7. So they took this area, which became known as Gaza. Did God help them? Not according to verse 23. Why didn't God help them? They didn't have any relationship to Abraham. But they wanted to beat the giants. Everybody in this chapter just wanted to take out the giants. And they believed they could. Which made it so they did. And so, brothers and sisters, even the Philistines can somehow take out giants. So, brothers and sisters, do you fully believe you can beat giants? Well, with the help of your heavenly father, I think it's pretty obvious that you can. But there's a flip side. Let's take a look at verse 40 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Because we're getting a different story about another nation. Another nation with a direct relationship to Abraham. Verse 40 says, but as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. We know this story. This is the beginning of the wanderings. Then Israel answered and said unto me, oh, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. And it's, I have a two-year-old. When you tell your two-year-old that there's going to be a punishment, all of a sudden, he turns around and says, okay, I'm going to do what's right. That's what Israel's doing. He says, God says, okay, we're going to wander. And Israel says, okay, wait, 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 wait. We'll go up and fight. We'll go up and fight. And the middle of verse 41, and when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the hill. And Yahweh said unto me, saying to them, go not up, don't fight, for I am not among you, lest ye be smitten before your enemies. So Moses says, I told you, but you would not hear. You rebelled against the commandment of Yahweh, and you went presumptuously unto the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in the mountain, came out against you and chased you, as bees do. And destroyed you in Seir, even at the Horma. Have you ever, guys ever seen somebody running away from a bee before? 
there's really only one thing funnier, and that's when like someone runs into a spider web. But people running away from bees run very fast. And they run in a straight line. And their hands are flailing everywhere. And that's what scripture shows that the children of Israel did. They were chased like they were being chased by bees. These Amorites chased them as bees chased them. And so God says, look, the land of Canaan, I assisted in your destruction. Look at verse 45. And ye returned and wept before Yahweh, but Yahweh would not hearken unto your voice, nor give ear unto you. Chapter 2, verse 14. In the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered, 38 years, until all the generation of men of war were wasted out from among the host, as Yahweh swear unto them, for indeed the hand of Yahweh was against them to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. And so starting here, God says, I'm going to destroy my own people, even though their relation to Abraham was immediate. And they were destroyed by the giants. What's the difference, brothers and sisters? What's the difference between the nations of the world and God's people? One group wanted to fight the giants. One group wanted to run away. And so God lays out in front of them a beautiful resume. He says, the Horims, I defeated. The Emims, I defeated. The Zamzumims, I defeated. The Avims, I defeated. And the Anakims, hmm. well, I wonder why the Anakims weren't beat. Well, it's because, brothers and sisters, there was a group of people who said, nah, I don't want to kill giants. I'm happy with where they're at. And so if these nations without any faith in Yahweh can overcome giants that oppose them, what could be possible to a nation that had faith, that had belief? And Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3 shows us that the option really is simple. And the outcome is clear. If you want to beat giants, believe that you can. But he's not done. He is going to go over an even more incredible story. And it's the story of two kings. The one, Sihon, and the other, Og, kings of these Amorites. And if you're going to start a pep rally to a brand new generation, that's almost an entire day's worth of a speech. Moses decides to start his with the story of Sihon and Og. Look at verse four of the first chapter. After he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt in Ashroth and Edrei. Four verses in, and we're already throwing the names out of giants. 
You see, what Moses is pleading with his people is when you go into the land, you're going to see the same giants your parents saw. You're going to see the same scary things, the walls, the weapons, and the people. But we have had a few years now of getting to know a little bit better that God can absolutely beat giants. Now, we're just going to spend a couple couple quick minutes here on looking at why we think Amorites may have been giants. Well, first of all, Og's coffin. It says Og's bed in Deuteronomy 3, verse 11. But the word is actually like a, like a funeral bed or a, or a death bed. It says, For only Og of king of Bashan remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath the children of Ammon? Nine cubits of the length thereof and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. So it says Og, king of Bashan, was a remnant of the giants and his coffin was large. Approximately, if you take the 18-inch cubit, 13 and a half feet by six feet. And so what happens here is he dies and they put him in a giant coffin, it appears. We know that they are Amorite kings from chapter four. Both these kings are kings of the Amorites, Og and Sihon. Now we're given an interesting verse in Amos. I'll go ahead and I'll read it for you. But Amos 2 verse 9 it says, yet destroyed I the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years to the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. So we're talking about the same exact context here. And Amos shows us that their height was like the height of cedars. So let's dive a little bit deeper into these two giants. Firstly, Sihon. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we're given a very cool little story. Look at verse 24. The stories of Sihon and Og are similar. So we'll really only dive into one of them, and we'll take Sihon. Verse 24, it says, Rise you up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given into thine hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. And so the children of Israel are thinking, finally, land that we can actually go in and we're allowed to take. Everything so far has been, go into this land, but don't take anything. I've given it to Ammon. Go into this land, don't take anything. I've given it to Edom. But now he says, go into the land of the Amorites. I've given you the land. Begin to possess it. Contend with him in battle. This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee Upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee, and they'll tremble, and they'll be in anguish because of thee, because you're going to go up, and you're going to beat a giant. And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kadesh, um, Kadmonoth, unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn to the right hand nor to the left. Thou shalt sell me meat for money that I may eat. And you'll give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. As the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwell in Ar, did unto me, until I shall pass over Jordan into the land which Yahweh our God given us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. 
For Yahweh thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. And Yahweh said unto me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land before thee. You can see how God is holding the hand of his people every single step of the way. Go into the land and take it. Okay, well, we're going to come in through peace. We'll buy your stuff. We're just going to be on our feet. No. And God says, look what I've given you. Begin to possess that thou mayest inherit his land. Verse 32. Then Sihon came out against us. He and all his people to fight at Jahaz. And Yahweh our God delivered him before us. And we smote him and his sons and all his people. And we took all his cities and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left nothing remaining. Only the cattle we took to pray for ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took. From Aror, which is by the brink of the river Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even it's Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. That sounds like a different Israel. Look at the end of verse 36. Because Yahweh, our God, delivered all unto us. Only unto the land of the children of Ammon thou camest not, nor unto any place of the river Jabbok, nor unto the cities of the mountains, nor unto whatsoever Yahweh, our God, forbade us. So they took the land of Heshbon. God assisted. Verse 24. But still, it wasn't Israel who started the battle, was it? It wasn't Israel who marched up and said, we're going to attack you. It was Israel who marched up and said, can we sneak through? And God says, okay. I'll send him against you and I'll assist you and I'll deliver him into your hand. And so brothers and sisters, Israel had actually destroyed giants. Og, same story, but this one in the land of Bashan, still they were provoked. God delivered. And Israel destroyed giants. And so you see what this rally cry in Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3 is all about. Anyone can beat giants. If they just believe on me, he says. And so you have the summary of Sihon and Og. We're going to see in a second how actually miraculous the rest of the world viewed this, just like God says that they would. The dread of thee, the fear of thee, under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you, he says. You beat Sihon and Og. Deuteronomy 2, verses 31 to 34. Begin to possess that thou mayest inherit the land. Verse 34. And we took all his cities. We utterly destroyed. We left none remain. Deuteronomy 3, verse 3. So Yahweh our God delivered into our hand Og also. And the king of Bashan and all his people. And we spoke him until none was left to him remaining. 
Verse six, and we utterly destroyed them as we did in the Sihon king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. And so the story is exactly the same with Sihon and Og. God says, I've given them to you. God sends them out against Israel. Israel's forced to rely on their God, and God gives them the victory. Because God wanted the rest of the world to see something. That he was with his people. So can we look at Deuteronomy chapters 1, 2, and 3 and think the same thing that the rest of the world thought? God beats the giants to those who believe. So do you think it was a big deal that Sihon and Og were beaten by Israel? Did that prophecy come true of Deuteronomy chapter 2? The entire world saw the power of Yahweh, but Israel could not. You probably notice this a lot if you're involved in any sort of preaching activities. <clears throat> There's a sort of passion that people who discover the truth have, that we were, who were born into it, we may never feel. They feel as if the biggest questions in life have answers. And they can look around the ecclesial body around them. They're dumbfounded that those who have had the truth their whole lives are completely obsessed with it. It was maybe a little bit similar for Israel. This story of Sihon of Heshbon and Og of Bashan would survive their entire history. People spoke about it generations later. When they entered into the promised land, one of the first things Rahab says is, you're with Israel. We've heard all about you. And they mention two things. And two things, usually. One, that your God split open an 11-mile-wide piece of ocean, and you guys walked straight on through on dry land, and then the walls of water crash down on the world's largest army. That's a big God. We've also heard one other story. Your God beat Sihon and Og, the giants? And it's these two stories that work their way through the history and the tales and the stories of Israel. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Giants are meant to fall. They're weak, they're feeble, they're nothing. And they belong fallen down. And so God resumes his resume, doesn't he, in chapter three? Sihon, eliminated. Og, eliminated. And so he's concluded his resume of beaten giants. Brothers and sisters, do we take these chapters and do we pull the same principles that Israel was meant to learn? God beats giants all the time for everyone. So have we decided in our booklet here, not only what our giant is, what his name is, where he lives, but maybe what reservations we see that maybe are going to get in the way of us actually believing that he can be driven out. 
Because God gave them a promise, and he says, the rest of the world is going to look at you and say, your God beat giants. Israel beat giants. And the rest of the world looked at Israel and said, they're scary. We're terrified of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound a little bit like Numbers 13? We're terrified of the giants. We can't go in there. There's giants in there. And now the rest of the world looks at Israel and says, they be giants. Israel's coming. It says in Deuteronomy 1, 28, Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. That was the summary. And God tells them that he's going to make them a great nation instead. For the sake of time, we'll skip through this. But the reason for their greatness was they were a wise and understanding people. Their greatness wasn't in the weapons they chose to fight giants. Their greatness wasn't in the armor, wasn't in the walls. It was actually in the lack thereof. It was because they were wise and understanding. God was near unto them because their statutes and judgments were righteous. And as we conclude today's session, brothers and sisters, Let's answer our last question here on the Nephilim and Rephaim section. What help can God give you to help you defeat your giant? Using examples from Brother David's classes, let's say Jason Robinson's giant is lukewarmness. Probably not a word. Then I know that lukewarmness, my giant, lives in a stronghold. I cannot throw away an attitude. I also know that the reservations I see that probably get in my way are life seems to move along just fine. My giant and I, we've made a good agreement. We're in a good place. Now, I know deep down, of course, this is wrong, but it's really hard to convince myself that any change is necessary. This is the reservations that I see from question number two. So the thing I can ask my God for help to give me is maybe a little kick in the pants. Snap me out of it. I need to pick a side. Lukewarmness says I'm fine in the middle. I enjoy this sometimes, and I enjoy that sometimes. So what can I pray for that will help me defeat my giant that I can't seem to find on my own? Well, I'll leave it up to Yahweh's wisdom, what works best for me. But this rut that I'm in needs to be figured out. So maybe send something uncomfortable my way. God, you'll know exactly how uncomfortable to make it. It's not discourage me, but to give me the faith to beat. Maybe send an og against me. Maybe send a Sihon against me. It's clear with lukewarmness as my giant, that it's unlikely that I'm going to get up and fight. So maybe, Heavenly Father, 
send a giant to me. Snap me out of this. This is something, brothers and sisters, that if I struggle with lukewarmness, maybe it's something I should pray for. Send me an og. Not too big, please. Send me a sihon. Not too violent, but just enough to get me to snap out of being lukewarm. And so, brothers and sisters, as the last thing, once you know what thing it is that God can give you to help you beat your giant, pray for it. Because if you're praying for it, then you're probably believing that he can help you.